Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. So, here we are in these, these continuing here in this conversation that Jesus is having with the disciples and, and, and with those that are around him. You know, as I've been thinking about this, and as I, I shared earlier, um, there's, there's a mystery here that, that God is, or that Jesus is going to try and reveal to them. There's some mysteries about the kingdom that, that they don't understand. And as I've been kind of thinking about the mysteries of the Bible and of who God is, I think frequently when I step out, step back from my faith and, and I look at all of the, the different beliefs in the, the world and, and different things, I frequently think to myself, okay, what is it that I believe that the scripture teaches? And what I, what I, okay, I believe that, that God is eternal. Well, that, that there is a God and that he's eternal. Okay, that's a mystery. I don't know how that's possible. In fact, when I was young, and maybe you've experienced this, and I hope this doesn't, um, is detrimental to you in any way, when I was very young, when I was probably in my teens, I thought there was moments that I, I would be go insane. Like I couldn't get my mind around that truth. Like how is something eternal forever? Something has to be before. How is anything even possible? And my head would begin to like hurt. And I just realized I can't think about that. <laughs> because there's just a mystery there that, that we'll never know. Like God is eternal. It says in the beginning, God. He's eternal. And so I, as I believe that, as I, as I, and I think, okay, now I'm going to share that truth with other people. Okay, that's going to be hard for them to grasp. It's hard for me to grasp. What else, what else do I, I see, though, that I believe that I want to teach, I want to share with people that I think the Scripture teaches us? Well, that, that I'm a sinner, that, that we're all, we've all rebelled against God, that we've all been created in God's image, but we've all rebelled against God. We've all have sin. We've all... We've all disobeyed. Okay, I, that's, a, that's an easy one. <laughs> I get that one. That's not as much of a mystery. I can see my own sinfulness. I can see the sinfulness of humanity. I can see it. And then it's, as I thought through it, okay, so I, I need to ch- tell people that God's eternal, that we're sinful, that God has a plan to redeem us because, see, the problem is, the truth is, is that there has to be judgment for our sin because because God is just. For God to be God, he has to be just, and, and a just God has to have justice, and since we've sinned against him, punishment, and what scripture clearly says is eternal death is the judgment. Okay, that's not really a mystery either. I get that. We see, we see the, the judicial system in our world today, and, and there's a justice system, and, it, and while it's not perfect, I understand justice. I get that, and so that's not as much of a mystery. But then I look at Scripture and say, what does God say that he's going to do to save me or to save anyone? He's going to take on flesh and become a man and walk the earth. And he's never going to sin. And I'm like, okay, how's that possible? Because he's a man. But, 
But the truth is, is he's fully God and fully man. And so in his fully God piece, he can keep his flesh from sinning, but he has to be fully man and of the flesh because he has to be one of us. Now there's a bit of a mystery. How he is both at the same time. And then the mystery goes on and it says, well, what does God do to save us? Well, he willingly goes to the cross and dies for us. Okay, I understand death. I've experienced it. I've had people die in front of me. I know what that looks like. It's, it's a gory death. Okay, I I've, understand I've that death can be horrific and, and violent and that there's evil in the world. And so, okay, I, he goes to the cross and he dies a, a brutal death. I can explain that to someone and I think we can picture that because we've seen that in our culture, in our world and, and we, can, we can get it. And they put him in a grave and, but then because he never sinned, he doesn't stay there and three days later, the Bible says he raises from the dead. Now there's a mystery. He comes back to life and he appears to people And he tells those people that if they will trust in him, if they will believe in him, if they will trust that he is God in the flesh and that he is perfect and holy and that he died in their place, that if they trust in that and live for him, that he will give them eternal life in heaven and they'll live forever too. Okay, mystery again. And my privilege is to share that mystery, those truths that are wrapped almost like a, a rope together. There's mystery, there's truths, there's archaeological evidence, there's historical evidence, there's, there's all these factual things wrapped with these mysteries. And my responsibility and my privilege is to share that truth with people and hopefully people do not think I am crazy. Because... Sometimes when I step away, I'm like, oh my. (laughs) Really? That's the truth? And yet when I look at every other view in the world, as many as that I can find, there's not one that comes close to that truth. Not one. Do I understand everything? No. If God is God, will we understand everything? No. In fact, I would argue that even when we get to heaven, we won't understand every mystery. Why? Because we're not God. We we will not understand all the mysteries because we are not him. We are not omniscient. We are not omnipresent. We're, We're not all things. We're not eternal in that sense. We had a beginning. So it's it's clear. So the mystery. And so if someone said to you, explain the kingdom of heaven to me, what's it like? I don't know. Where would I go? I'd go to scripture. So here in the text is is really what's happening. Jesus is, is beginning to try and explain the mystery of the kingdom. And he's gonna give these two simple little parables that contain these huge truths, in my opinion, about the kingdom. And they are glorious and they are overwhelming and yet simple. And so, we're gonna do our best to kind of discover those mysteries as he 
unpacks them for us. But before we do that, we're going to jump back into where Brian was last week. Brian was in chapter 4, verses 21 through 25. And here, I'm going to read this to you, and I'm just going to pick out one verse then. I want to talk about one verse, because I think it kind of sets up for where we're going to go today. Now, remember that Jesus came, and he's, he's teaching, he's been healing people, he's been casting out demons, uh, and, and that's where he's at, um, and, and people are kind of um, overwhelmed by what he's doing, and he's trying to share who he is, and he's this glorious, he's, you know, he's, he's God in the flesh, and, he's, and the, the Pharisees hate him. They think he's the devil because he's casting out demons, and yet he's, he's doing wonderful things, and he's speaking with authority and all of these things. And so here we pick it up in Mark chapter 4, verse 21 through 25. It says, and he said to them, is a lamp brought in out of, and, and to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For here's the verse, for nothing is hidden except it to be made manifest, to be made known, to be revealed, right? That word manifest. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. For is anything secret except to come to light? If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use it, use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So here, he's, Jesus is saying that there is things that are hidden, that are mysterious. But those things that are hidden are meant to be revealed at the right time and the right purposes in the right way, and God's plan, and, and so he's saying, and so he's saying, now listen, because what he's basically telling is, I'm going to reveal some of these hidden things to you. I want to share some of these things with you. And so if anyone has ears, let him hear. Now, as Pastor Brian and I have been saying for the past few weeks, uh, the parable is this, um, he kind of tells us things, and he kind of compares things. They run side by side to kind of convey a spiritual truth or, or something that God wants us to know in a, in a very earthly way in the story, but it's really revealing a spiritual truth. But he says that most people won't be able to understand the parable, and he takes his disciples aside, not just the apostles, but his followers, and tells them and reveals it to them. And so the question we wrestle with is, why don't they understand? Why does not everyone understand the parable? And I think we've been able to kind of pull out of Scripture is it's because their hearts are hard. They don't really want to listen. Notice what he says here. Pay attention to what you hear. If anyone has ears, let him hear. The person who wants to know, the person that desires the truth, the person that knows that they they're sinful and they, they know they need answers. They know that there's something bigger and beyond themselves and they hear Jesus speaking and they lean in and they want to know. I believe for those people are people that follow Jesus, are people that are gonna then be with him and he's gonna reveal more to them. But there's another group of people that he's referencing, I think, here. They don't wanna know. They don't really care. 
they're going about their life. They really don't care. Their ears are, hard, their ears are closed. Their heart is hard. Their eyes are blind. The, the Pharisees are obviously the leaders of that group, and they're there. And when we look at our world today, I would think our world is filled with those people. They don't care. They don't, want, they don't care what the truth is. They just, they just want what they want. They just they want to follow their feelings. They want to follow their flesh. They're not interested. Maybe they even sit and attend church services at times, but their heart is cold. And what Jesus is saying is, is they won't understand the parable because their, their ears are not open to hear it. Their heart is hard. And so, Jesus is going to now reveal a couple mysteries here. And so, what's our big idea? Jesus reveals kingdom mysteries. In these two small little parables here that we're going to quickly go through, he's going to reveal two very simple, profound mysteries, I believe. So let's look at the first one. The first parable here is going to be um, Mark chapter 4, 26 through 29. But before we read it, I want to tell you what I think that we're going to see, what the mystery here is, or what the, the, the main point of the text. The main point of this text, I believe, is that God is the sole source of kingdom growth. God is the sole source of kingdom growth. There's a kingdom that's coming, and Jesus is going to reveal how this kingdom grows, and what he's going to reveal to them is that God is the sole source of that growth. You say, well, why, why is that important? Why, why does that matter? Why, why would they not think that? Because I think that they are all very much a very works-based system under the law, that the growth of, of the kingdom was really based on what they were doing and how they were living and, and the temple and all their sacrificial, sacrificial systems and their obedience to the law and all of these things, that they looked at it and they felt very self-righteous that they could do this. And what Jesus is saying is the mystery of the kingdom is, is that you don't have anything to do with the growth of the kingdom. Only God. So let's read the passage. Remember, he's explaining the mystery of the kingdom of God. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now, I wanna, before we dive into these two parables a little bit, I wanna, I wanna give a caution in your study. When we read parables like this, um, the temptation sometimes is to put all sorts of things in here and say, oh, this is what this means, this is what this means, this is what it means. And, and be very careful when you do that. Um, we don't want to add things to the text. Now, we do have to make some, um, some determination what we think the text says and what it points to, and so we do have to go there a little bit. But I will tell you that as you read commentaries, commentaries are going to say all sorts of different things. That they're going to say things that may be true and may not be true. And so what I, I want to say that just because a commentary says something doesn't make it 
the word of God. It, it is, it's just someone's thoughts, maybe, maybe good studied thoughts, maybe good um, you know, rooted in, in the text thoughts, but they're just thoughts. And so what I'm really going to try hard to do today is just keep the main thing the main thing. I, maybe there's other application we could get out of this. That's fine. But, but really, I want to just give a couple things that I think I can stand on and say, no, I think this is what Jesus is trying to say here in this parable. And the main point, I think, is that the sole source of kingdom growth is God. Notice here it says, and I don't think that, that the man is the object here. I don't think the man is the, the focal point of the text. Notice it says, the kingdom of God, as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. So I don't think he's saying God is, is the man or Jesus is the man. Now, obviously, does Jesus do that? Yes. Do we scatter seed? So could we be the man? Yes. But the focus of the text is not really on the man. It's on the seed. Notice Scatter the seed on the ground. He sleeps and he rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The point of the text here is that God is causing this seed to germinate, that the seed to, to grow. He knows not how. It's, the earth brings it forth. It goes on there. It says the earth produces by itself, right? It's, it's something that happens outside of man's influence. The kingdom is going to grow and it's going to flourish and, 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 and just continue to grow throughout time and eternity. Nothing to do with us. God is in control of that growth. I would argue that God is the author of salvation. It is he that brings life. It is he that brings us life. And so I just want to share a couple points out of this. The first thing is that spiritual transformation is a work of God. Spiritual transformation is a work of God. We see this um, best represented, I think, in, in John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and he, he comes to Jesus at night, and he wants to know why, like, why are you doing these things? Who are you? He, he has questions upon questions. And he says, we know you must be from God because you do some incredible things some mysterious things. And, and Jesus tells him that he must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. And so Nicodemus is a, is a good teacher and says, well, okay, well, tell me how I do that. Tell me how I see it. And so they have this conversation about being born of the spirit. And, and, and we get to ch chapter three, verse eight. And, and basically Nicodemus just wants a, a one, two, three step. How do I become born again? How do I become a how do I get this thing that you're saying, Jesus? How do I have this? How do I possess this thing? What we would call salvation. Nicodemus just wants a simple step-by-step -step process. Here is Jesus' answer to him. Verse eight. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You think Nicodemus was satisfied with that answer? <laughs> Jesus really didn't tell him anything, except for that, Nicodemus, you're not responsible for this. You're not in control of, of being born again. This is God's. God is in control. He's the one that, that causes the seed to grow. Think about that for a second. I don't know if you've ever been fascinated um, by these type of things. I think as a very, a more of an urban culture all the time, especially um, in cities, 
we miss some of the miracles that, that take place, the, the natural things in our creation and God's creation that, that kind of should overwhelm us. I remember growing up, and I don't know, they only had one once or twice, you used to uh, send in box tops and you would get the little, um, for cereal, and you would get the little, I don't know what they were called, terrariums or whatever, the little thing that you would plant seeds and a little clear thing and, and, and you would wade and things would pop up and you would see them sprout. As a little kid, that was the coolest thing, right? Waiting to see this, this little green thing or sometimes it was white just until it came out of the ground until the thing popped forth. That was just amazing. Today, we plant gardens, not, not as many people plant gardens. We don't we farm, you know, obviously, but we don't pay attention to what's happening. Are you ever amazed? I mean, I'm amazed when we drive by a field and like thousands of little sprouts are coming up of corn, you know? I'm like, how does, how does that happen? And then like later in the summer, they're eight feet tall and they have ears on them, all from a little tiny ear of corn or a little kernel of corn that somebody put in the ground in dirt, Right? Who does that? Who makes it grow? God does. We don't have anything to do with that. You say, well, we fertilize it, we water it. Yep, we do those things. But if it doesn't germinate, God causes the germination. All the, all the information, all the data that is necessary for that, that seed to produce that thing is all contained in the seed. It is there. Think about all the seeds that we, that we plant. But see, here's the thing. Most of us don't do that anymore. Most of us, when we go to plant our gardens, most of us anymore go to the nursery and buy tomato plants. We buy plants. Sometimes we'll plant some seeds. If you're a big gardener, you will have some seeds. I got strawberry plants. I get them already, they're already up, they're already planted. So I don't, I don't see that. And I think we're missing some of the miracle that's right before us is that, that here in the parable, he's just saying, we don't know how that happens. This is all God's doing it says, the man does not know. The earth produces itself. This idea of spiritual transformation, this idea of how that happens in us, right? And so when he's talking to Nicodemus here, he says, Nicodemus, you're not responsible for that. You, you can't control it. All you can do is ask for it. You can ask God for it. You can just beg that God will cause you to, to be born again, but you cannot do it yourself. Now, do we have responsibility to believe? Absolutely we do. He goes on later in John chapter one, and he says, for all who, he did, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Once again, John, keeping with that same thought, God is the one that causes us to come alive. Paul kind of puts it this way in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, Out of your own salvation, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God working in us, it is for his purposes. Isaiah 46 says we were created for his glory. God has a plan and a purpose. Salvation is part of that. And it brings him glory. Earlier in Philippians chapter 6, verse 
or chapter 1, verse 6, it says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's saying, God is holding you fast. God is going to bring to completion what he has started in you. Many of you probably have a story similar to this. When I was 18, I, I gave my life to Christ. I was transformed. I think I was a new creation in Christ. I clearly was changed from I'm made alive. I, could, I, could, I understood the gospel. I understood um, what it meant to be a sinful person. I understood I, need, I needed salvation. I needed Christ. I was dependent upon him. All of it. I was on fire. But I wasn't attending a church. I thought I could do this on my own. I didn't, didn't have anybody discipling me. I didn't know anybody that, that knew Jesus really. Not literally, except for my dad. And like, no one. And so six months later, I begin to grow cold. And next thing you know, I was back in a life of sin and ugliness for many years. In fact, 10 years. I meet my wife. God works. We come and we find the ridge eventually 26 years ago. Here I stand as a pastor of 15, 16 years, and I never got born again again. I only got born again once when I was 18 years old, when I, I felt God saved me. So where do, I, where do I wrestle with that? There's a mystery there because I, I, I can say that I believe that when God saved me, that was forever. And I was 18, he, he became, he resided in me, he put his Holy Spirit in me, I, I surrendered, you know, I, I believed, he saved me. And then I'm living a very sinful life and I can take you into scripture and says, the life I was living, the scripture says that I will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's like, okay, but I thought I was saved, but I'm living this way, so here I am. Am I really saved, am I not saved? Now here I am again. I'm not living that lifestyle anymore. He's delivered me from that and here I am again. And so what's the text say? I am sure of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will bring into completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If that work in me was truly of God, and it is, I mean, it, it has to be, then he'll bring into completion and make sure that I am ready or that you are ready when Christ returns or before we die. He holds you fast. I mean, now I don't want you to be complacent in that. I'm just saying we should, take, we should take great joy in that, that he holds us fast, that we cannot hold ourselves. He holds us. He keeps us. We would drift away. Our flesh would not want to follow. So not only is spiritual transformation a work of God, but the next point is the word of God produces spiritual growth. If the idea is, is that the seed is the word of God, which in this parable that is the, the context here, that the seed is the word of God, the seed is the one producing the growth, right? And so if the seed is the word, the extrapolation there is the word of God is the thing that produces the growth in us. So when we, faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word of God. In other words, we have to hear the gospel to make us alive. 
Romans 10 says, how will they know unless someone tells them, right? We have to hear the gospel. Go and proclaim the good news. Why did Jesus come to teach? Why did he have to come and tell us? Why couldn't he have just come and died and not said anything? Because somebody has to tell us the good news so that we can hear it so that it can transform us. Scripture says that the, the word of God is living and active, right? It's, it's the one thing that makes us alive. It, it cuts to the core of who we are. And so here in, the, here in the parable, it's one of the things he's saying is, is that the word of God produces this spiritual growth. It has the power to transform us. It is the thing that produces the blade, the ear, and the full grain in the ear. I like how Isaiah puts it in 55, chapter 55, verse 10 and 11. He says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So this picture of rain coming down, watering the earth, God is making things grow and it's producing bread, it's producing a harvest. And then he compares it. He says, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to be empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed that which for I sent it. His word goes forth. Not just Jesus, but his word in the Old Testament, which is Christ ultimately. And it's going to accomplish exactly what he intends it to do. Right? It's going to bring the spiritual growth. It is the thing that transforms people. It is the thing that transformed me. And one day I heard the gospel and it took root in me and God changed me. I'm sure that's true for many of you this morning. The temptation, though, then, is to say, well, if that's true, then I don't really need to do anything. And no, that's not true at all. We partner with God. We, the Scripture says we believe. We, 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 we listen. We believe. We, are, we make sure that our hearts are tender for that. But we cannot make ourselves alive. Only God can do that. And so what is our responsibility what is our responsibility? Many. I'm just going to give you one. I would argue that here in the text, one of our responsibilities is clear to me is that we are to sow seed. We are to sow seed. The seed has to be sown. It has to be shared. Someone, and this, this picture of the man, I think it's generic because one of the, the ideas here is that we're the ones that we should be sowing seed as well. Right? The kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground, we don't understand how it works, but our job is to scatter the seed. And why is that? Because remember, Jesus came to teach. Hear the word. The word is the thing that transforms us. And so I just want to take you to a few passages that kind of highlight this. In Acts chapter 4, the church is just getting started. And what's the most important thing? Peter and John are preaching, they're teaching, they're sharing the word, right? Acts chapter four, verse one through four. It says this, as, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They're ticked off because somebody is preaching Jesus. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. 
For it was already evening, but many, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. What's the point of what they're doing? They were sent to teach. And it says, many believed, and the number was about 5,000. The word transformed them. The preaching of the word is powerful. It's, it's one of the reasons why, Pastor Brian and I have said this for a long time, it's one of the things we are so convinced that, that our job, our responsibility as pastors and elders is to teach the word, is to preach the word, not, not self-help, not all these great ideas about different things, because we believe the power is in the word. I don't have any. Pastor Brian doesn't have any. The elders don't have any. Our job is to proclaim the mysteries of the word of God and trust that the spirit will cause it to germinate in your heart and bring spiritual growth and life. He goes on here in Acts chapter five. Now remember, they're arrested. Chapter five, it says, verse 19 through 21, it says, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, so he sets them free. Now what's his direction to them? Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. The most important thing that we can do is to teach, to share the word of God, because it is the power to be transformed. The word of God brings life. You say, well, I've shared the gospel with somebody and that hasn't happened. That's not your responsibility. Your job is to scatter seed, is to, is to share. It's a mystery how that works. I don't understand it. I don't. That's not for me to know. My job, my responsibility, my privilege, and your privilege is to share the mysteries that you understand about the kingdom, primarily the gospel with people, to sow seed, to pray for, Paul puts it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Here, talking to Timothy as he's preparing him to go and do ministry. This is Paul's getting close to, I believe, his death. He says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Why are we here today? Because for 2,000 years, People have been sharing that truth. They've been sowing seeds in the hearts of people. The only reason that you're, if you're here today and you're a believer, you're a born-again believer, is because somebody shared the gospel with you. That's, that's, and something happened. You believe now something, as I said earlier, that for some people think is absolutely ridiculous that you would think that God became a man and walked the earth and died on a cross and raised from the dead and says, if you will trust in him, you will have eternal life. Some people would say, that's absolutely ridiculous. And yet I believe that is absolutely the truth. And we're supposed to teach that. We're supposed to proclaim that to everyone. Second parable. We're going to look at chapter 4, verses 30 through 32, but here's the point of the text. This is going to be a quick one. The kingdom will not come in the way that man expects. I should say the kingdom didn't come in the way man expects. 
But that's true probably even for people today because they're, they're blind to it. The kingdom will not and did not come in the way that man expects. So the first mystery was is the kingdom is like a seed that is sowed and we don't understand how it grows, what causes it to grow, but it does grow. And what really is pointing to is the glorious potential or the glorious power of God to transform people and that to let us know that we are not part of that. We're not, we're not responsible for that. We are to help sow, but we cannot bring the increase. The second mystery here is that, that God is gonna take something tiny, insignificant, and make something glorious out of it because that's not what people expected. What were people expecting? We've said it many times. People were expecting a, a, a king, a, a ruler, a King David type figure, right? To come and destroy Rome and to, to overthrow and to set the Israelites free. They'd seen that in their past. But yet God, Jesus is sharing a mystery. He says, no, that, that's not what's gonna happen. What does the parable say? He says, and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown in the ground, is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Now, I'll stop right there. In case you want to be real technical, that's not true. It's not the smallest seed of all the earth, okay? In Jesus' time, it was probably the, one of the smallest seeds, maybe the smallest seed that they would have to be able to plant. So that's what he's saying here. It's, it's, it's the tiniest seed that you guys have, right? And he goes on there and it says, so it is the smallest of, of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So what is, what is the parable teaching? What's the, just the, Simple truth is that God is going to take something insignificant to what man thinks is insignificant, and he has the power to make it glorious. It's that picture. Is that the God has the power to grow the kingdom from nothing to the most glorious thing. And notice there it says that, and it becomes larger than all the garden plants that he puts, so they have gardens and they're sowing, you know, obviously they're, they're very agrarian culture and they're planting things and they have gardens and all sorts of things. And this little tiny insignificant seed, he's comparing it and saying, the kingdom is like this. It's, it's, you think it's insignificant, but the kingdom starts with nothing. And yet it will grow and it will be the largest thing in your garden. And it will sprout branches. And on those branches, birds will come and make nests and take shelter there. The kingdom will not come the way man expects. We see this, I mean, this is a picture, right? Jesus is born to a, to a, a shepherd girl, basically, or a, a young girl, to shepherds out in the wilderness. No one cares about them. No one expects that Jesus would come this way. He's a carpenter's son. In fact, what do they say when Jesus comes and starts to do his ministry? Isn't that Joseph's son? He's insignificant, Surely not. Even his own family we saw in the last few weeks. No, he's my brother. He's insignificant. God is doing something to show his own glory, the, the something that only he would do this way. 
to make it great and wonderful. Now I will tell you that back to this idea of reading commentaries and not putting more into the text than we should. So this passage here as it closes in verse 32, it says, and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in their shade. A lot of people want to try and explain what that is. What does that mean? I will tell you right now, I don't know. I have an opinion. You should research it and see what you think, and, but be very careful. There's two opinions, that, at least that I and my study found to be prevalent. Now, notice that it says birds. Puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Some, I don't ascribe to this view, some would argue that the birds of the air, remember in the parable of the sower, the birds of the air that came and they plucked up the seed. Some commentators will tell you that the picture here is that the kingdom is gonna grow up and be this great mustard plant and it's gonna be these big branches and the birds represent corruption inside the church because they're the ones that are gonna swoop down and take out the seed and that the church is gonna have corruption in it. I don't see that. I think what Jesus is saying something here that he, he thinks this is a positive, it's a glorious thing. They're gonna find shade. So while it, it, it's not gonna speak exactly to this, I think that there is some contextual things that we can look back in the Old Testament that other passages that talk about um, things taking shelter in underneath a tree and sometimes it's referring to Israel and sometimes it's referring to other nations. But I think the the thought maybe is similar. Now let's read you something from Ezekiel chapter 17, 23 through 24. Here God is talking about Israel and about what he's going to do. And it says, on the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it. He's talking about a tree here, a cedar. That it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches Birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I will bring low the high tree. I will make high the low tree, dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. Here I think he's talking about Israel. Some would make the point here, though, that what he's saying is, is that this represents the birds of every sort will nest here in this. Some would say that that's the Gentiles. It's a picture of the Gentiles being grafted in at some point and that every nation will be represented in what God is building up. It's another view. What we do know is that God is the one that takes something insignificant and grows it to something majestic. And that there will be shelter in that, that, that the kingdom will be available for everyone. Revelation says every tongue and tribe will be represented there. Everyone is welcome. We see that in the New Testament. The Gentiles are welcome. Whether this is exactly referring to that or not, I think it can be a picture that God is saying in the kingdom there is room for everyone. For those that believe, there is room. 
for you to rest and take shelter. Last verse, or last two verses. Mark 4, 33 through 34. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them. As they were able to hear it, he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This kind of bookends our discussion. Once again, are you willing to listen? Are you willing to hear? Do you care? Notice there he says again, right? For those able to hear it. But then he explains it more privately. So this goes back to this, what Brian talked about last week, that if you, if you have ears to hear, more will be added. But if you don't, what you have will be taken. <coughs> this idea that if, if you have ears to hear and you're, you're digging into the scripture, you want to know the truth, God is going to give you more and you're going to understand more and you're going to, you're going to grow. You're going to, but for those that do not have ears to hear, that what they do have is ultimately going to grow cold because they're going to continue to move away and it's just going to be, they're going to go cold. And so what they have is going to be gone because they're not even going to meditate on what they have. And so, how do we want to wrap up today? As we look at these two mysteries and how God reveals the kingdom, I thought it would for us to be good to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Because when we do that, I think there's a bit of a mystery here in the sense that God is unveiling the mystery of the gospel. He does it in the simple act of eating a little cracker and drinking some juice. It's the simplest thing, but it reveals the most incredible truth. That Jesus suffered for us. Not only did he suffer for us, he dies in our place. And he does it out of love. And so as we kind of unpack this, I want to talk to you a little bit about it. Before we do that, I'm going to ask the guys to, to start passing out the elements. So if you're here and you've been asked to do that, if you would meet back in the back, they're going to pass some plates by you and you're going to get a chance to get a cracker and a little juice. Once again, I would ask that if you um, are a guest with us today and if you're a believer, you are absolutely welcome to participate with us in this. Uh, if you are um, not a born-again believer, we would ask that you just let the pace plate pass you on by, and that's absolutely fine. We're so grateful that you're here. Um, but I will encourage you as well, as believers, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 uh, warns us that we should not partake of the Lord's Supper if we have unrepentant sin in our heart. If there are things that that we've not confessed, not openly to him. And you say, well, God knows, but yes, have, but have you, have you asked forgiveness for that? Have you asked for repentance of that? Do you have hardness of heart that you should not do that? Because when you partake it, you're saying that this, I'm, I'm acknowledging the death and resurrection of Christ and that I need him. And yet, yet when you're unrepentant, you're saying, no, I don't need him. And so he wants us to make sure that we are in a right mind spiritually. So as they do that, just want to take that and we'll, we'll take it together. Now, as we do that, I want to remind you of something. As we take the bread, 
Thank you, Steve. There are some thoughts about what the bread represents. Obviously, it says in multiple of the the passages of the gospel that he says in the night he was betrayed, he's having a meal, celebrating the Passover with his, his disciples, and at the, at the end of dinner, he, he breaks this bread and he gives it to them. And he says, this is my body broken for you. Okay, what, is, what does that all entail? Well, clearly we know his body was beaten for us. So there is this, I mean, he was beaten to the edge of his life, right? Now, technically it wasn't broken because the prophecy was that Jesus would not have any broken bones. And, and we know that when he was on the cross, one of the things that they would do when it came close to sundown is the Roman guards would come up and they would break the legs, the, the femur generally, of the person on the cross so that they could not support themselves because they didn't want people on the cross still alive after sundown. It was on the Sabbath and so, uh, or on Passover. And so they would break their legs. And they came to Jesus and they stuck him with a spear to see if he was alive and he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs, fulfilling the prophecy that no bone of his would be broken. And so I think that's a very legitimate way of thinking about his body being broken for you. I like to, and you can take this for what it's worth, I also like to to view it this way. Jesus broke his flesh for us. Remember we talked about the, the fully God and fully man part. Jesus never sinned. I don't know about you, but that's a mystery to me. I, I, couldn't, I can't do that because of my sin nature. Jesus broke, and he goes, well, he didn't have a sin nature. Yes, but he was tempted in every way, right? We, we know that he was fully man, not born of Adam by God's grace, Right? And so he broke it into submission. He never sinned. He was fully obedient. And so he, he broke his body for us. And why is that important? Because I think one of the things that we often think about is that, oh, I need Jesus to die for me. And that's true. You do. And that's what the juice is going to be about. But you also need a righteousness, not your own. Jesus had to live a perfect life to obtain a righteousness that we could not obtain. A perfect life a fully obedient life. We need that. It's not just about paying for the sin of the past, but we need something moving forward. We need a righteousness moving forward. The scripture says that he dies and he breaks his flesh for us. He makes it so that he can have a perfect life and so that when we are saved by Christ, it says he imputes that righteousness to us. He gives it to us. And so when we take the bread, it's that. The juice represents his blood. This idea that now not only do we need a righteousness that we need to have, we need someone to die in our place. Because scripture says that because of our sin, justice is required and justice requires death. The wages of sin is death, right? And so Jesus now dies in our place and he says this is, this is my blood shed for you. He's saying, I, my blood, I'm gonna die. And I don't know that they understood what was gonna happen the next day. Obviously they did not. There was some mystery there that he's unraveling for them even as it's taking place. 
And so we now, 2,000 years later, are looking back on this mystery that he was revealing to them. And when we take this juice and when we eat of this cracker, that mystery has been made clear. And so we can celebrate and, and realize that the mystery has been made clear. And when we see the bread and we taste the juice, and, and it's, we should rejoice that we understand the mystery that God has revealed, the mystery of the gospel. And so right now, I'm just going to give you a few minutes to sit and pray. Praise God if, if you are, this morning you don't have any unrepentant sin. If you do, it's a time to, to go before the Lord and ask for repentance. If today you, you don't have a relationship with Christ, you've not been born again, I would pray that, I would ask God to, to show you the mystery of the gospel, to save you, to, to put a new heart in you, to cause you to be born again, right? As Nicodemus was asking Jesus I would just encourage you to ask God to save you. And then in a few minutes, we'll take communion together. The passage concludes and it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So not only remembering by doing this, this incredible truth, this mystery of the gospel that God reveals in the most simplest elements of juice and a cracker. Just like he explains the kingdom as a seed germinates, the tiniest of seeds to be the most glorious thing. Don't miss the beautiful simplicity of the gospel. Don't, don't think that it has to be some deep theologically web of mystery. To, no, there's simple beauty right in front of us a glorious proclamation that we can preach the word of God and it changes someone. <laughs> I mean, it changes them, makes them alive. You and I have a responsibility to share that news, to teach. What greater thing could God have given us, not just our salvation, but allow us to be part of the work of saving people. We don't get to save them. We get to be the ones that tell them. I don't know what greater thing God could have given us to be a part of. His work that he gets the glory for. He allows us to have a front row seat and to be part of that glorious work. And so what is our next step, so to speak, this morning. We should rejoice that the mystery has been revealed to you and to me. The mystery has been revealed. Think about that. I was once lost and now I'm found. How did that happen? Because God revealed the mystery. Not because I worked extra hard and, and did something to earn it or did, no. The glorious gift of the gospel, Right? We are saved by grace through faith, not of works so that no one can boast. That is the beauty of the gospel. That God would come and take on flesh and live an obedient life and die in our place. If we will then trust and believe in him, he will give us eternal life. What a beautiful thing. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. 
Lord, there's many, many mysteries in Scripture, many mysteries of who you are. And Father, we rejoice in that because you are bigger than us. You are eternal. You are God, and we just stand in awe of you. And so we would expect mysteries. We would expect not to know everything. We can't even figure how the seed grows on its own and millions of different seeds produce millions of different things. What a, what a glorious, we're talking about the heavens declare your glory. I would say, Father, the seeds declare your glory. But Father, you in your grace have revealed the most important mystery to us, the mystery of the good news of the gospel, that Jesus came and took upon sin for us. He who committed no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, Paul tells us in Corinthians. What a great, mystery revealed to us. Many in our world do not see that mystery, do not understand that mystery. They've not been revealed that mystery yet, Father. And we don't, we don't know how to fix that. We pray for people, but our job, our responsibility, our privilege is to keep sharing the gospel and pray that your will will be done in the hearts of believers. Lord, we thank you for our time together today. May our time have brought you glory and honor. Help us to rejoice in the mystery that you've revealed to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at Have a blessed day.